Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Woohoo! All right, I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Jessica Hain and our producer, Sydney Ingle. Say hi, Sydney. Hello. We are excited to have a great team tonight. Our guest, Dr. Rohan, takes a deep dive on common presentations of tinea infections and mimickers. But before we dive into content, hey, Jessica, can you remind us about the show? Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation today with our returning guest, Dr. Craig Rohan, who is a dermatologist and pediatrician at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, where he also holds a faculty appointment in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology. Prior to joining Wright State, Dr. Rohan retired from active duty following a distinguished 24-year career as a physician in the United States Air Force. He has been fortunate to have been awarded multiple teaching awards during his career, including Teacher of the Year, and was also awarded Clinician of the Year by Wright State Academy of Medicine in 2019. Personally, he enjoys biking to work, running, and watching the NHL Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche. As a regular listener, Dr. Rohan is excited to have been invited to take part in another Cribsider podcast. Dr. Rohan teaches us how to differentiate annular skin lesions in our patients, why his favorite topical antifungal is ketoconazole, and when to treat tinea versicolor with a combination of oral itraconazole and, quote, wallowing in sweat. I'm so excited. Justin, I think you mentioned having a joke for us. I do. Are we ready? So, Mushroom walks into a bar, orders a drink. Bartender says, hey, man, we don't serve your kind here. Mushroom says, give me a chance. I'm a fun guy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Fungus joke. (laughs) Welcome back to the show, Dr. Craig Rohan. It's great to have you. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be back. We're an informal group, as you remember. I hope it's still okay to go first name basis. Craig, is that okay? Absolutely. Excellent. We're all friends. You provided a wonderful episode on atopic dermatitis in the past, where I promised you I would start prescribing topical calcineurin inhibitors. I still have not gotten the chutzpah to do so yet, but I think now I, I am re-motivated to take that pearl from our last episode and put it into practice. But for those people who didn't listen to the episode or it's been a while, can you remind us um, a little bit about yourself and give us a, a kind of a one-liner description? Sure, sure. So yeah, I, I guess I'll uh, go as your prior guest has said, I'm a f- uh, father, I'm a husband, I'm a physician scientist uh, outside of medicine. I'm a big bicyclist, although I fell off my bike in August and had a nice little concussion a couple of days in the hospital, but I'm better. Uh, and uh, I like to snowboard. And, and I guess the update from last podcast, I did my uh, favorite hockey team, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup last summer. And if there are any hockey fans who are listening, some might be annoyed um, because their team didn't win. Um, if they're from Colorado, they'll probably be happy. So this is great. The, the hockey, the snowboarding, and concussion, all of those things go together. This is a. Uh, <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. It's a good fit. Uh, I have not gotten into to hockey. When the Las Vegas team was the underdog, that got me in, but I 
the Golden Knights. Is that right? The Vegas Golden Knights? Yeah, it's been a yeah, while. Yeah, I, yeah uh, a lot of hockey fans don't like them because they were instantly great. Yeah. There was like no paying the dues. I had 21 years of watching my team between Stanley Cups and they went to the finals the first year, but they haven't won the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's all good. It's yeah. All, good. all right. Yeah. Hockey fans like to like other hockey fans. Well, this, this will be a good episode for the hockey fans. <laughs> Uh, one other one-liner I should say, actually, just, you know, so I actually have no conflicts of interest with topical calcineurin inhibitors that you, you made it sound like I was selling them. Um, and they're, they're not like, they're not like the, the panacea for atopic dermatitis, but a pediatrician should be comfortable using them. And they certainly are safer uh, than topical steroids other than that they sting and pharmacy benefit managers tend to not like to approve them, even though they're generic and relatively inexpensive, but, uh, uh, boy, it sure sounded like I was hawking some I, uh, topical calcineurin intro. So. I apologize. I just vividly remember no, being like, when, uh, when can a, can a primary care provider prescribe this? And you're like, yes, a primary care provider can <laughs> definitely prescribe this. So I, I'm going to, yeah, I'm still yeah. going to work on my comfort level as one small tool in my otherwise large bag of topical steroids. Yeah, toolbox. no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Thanks for clarifying, Craig. <laughs> So I'd love to ask you one of my favorite questions, which is what is a book that every physician should read? Yeah, I'm probably showing my age and, and I hope uh, this isn't a cliche book, but this is, I think it's 40 years ago, Oliver Sacks wrote uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And uh, again, actually all the Oliver Sacks books are good. And even just the, the story of the guy are, are, is pretty interesting. And so obviously I'm a pediatric dermatologist. I, I'm not a neurologist, but the uh, thought process of a, of a, of a physician, I think is uh, well outlined in those books. And so I, I think that's great. I would also say maybe just a page turner, any page turner. Um, I think we uh, spend so much time reading journals. I spend a lot of time on med Twitter and uh, it's probably not a bad thing to read something not medical too. So, yeah. Agreed. That a great canonical medical text, the man who was just white for a hat and I'll share with my pick of the week, I, a book that uh, uh, has stuck with me, cloud cuckoo land. Have, have you, any of you seen it? It's on my to-read list. It is also it's, on my to-read to list. If this can be the impetus, it is the it is the topical calcineurin inhibitors of, <laughs> of modern fiction. It's, uh, no, it, it was it was amazing. It was really good. So I, I, I'm spreading the gospel of cloud cuckoo land. That's awesome. This is great. Let's uh, let's dive into some content. We have an ambitious script that I'm excited about. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helps support the show. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Whether you're a fourth-year med student, a resident, or an attending physician, Panacea Financial is a bank designed specifically for you. Panacea offers free checking with no ATM fees nationwide, 24-7 customer service, and loan options custom-made for physicians or trainees at every career stage. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, home renovations, or even consolidating high-interest debt. Panacea's PRN personal loan is funded in as little as 24 hours with interest rates starting at half of a typical credit card. They understand money can be tight, which is why they offer a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. They also support physicians in other ways, including helping you start, expand, or even buying into a practice or surgery center. If you're ready to join the thousands of doctors who have declared independence from traditional banks, visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your free account. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus member FDIC. Sydney, do you want to lead us into our first patient? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a couple of cases today. We're going to start with our first case. You are seeing Tanya, a 14-year-old girl with no significant medical history, in clinic for concerns of a rash. About a month ago, her caregiver noticed a round patch right beneath her axilla. 
Over the past month, it has gotten slightly bigger and causes moderate itching. On exam, Tanya is a well-appearing child with medium dark skin. Under her right axilla, you see an approximately 3-centimeter erythematous round plaque with raised edges and central clearing. So I think probably for many of us who see kids in clinic, this is not a particularly surprising presentation. But I would like to ask you, um, what initially stands out to you about the case? Well, from the the case presentation that you had given, and it's good that it's not so classic that we have nothing to talk about, right? Um, in many cases, uh, and you know, we'll think of annular lesions, meaning you know, basically circular lesions having kind of a specific differential, and that differential can go from inflammatory to infectious. There's some reactive processes, and so then you know, within when we're actually seeing a patient, we look for things like you mentioned central clearing. We ask about symptoms, and and so the the case you know as written actually has some nuance that would argue for and against various conditions. So, for instance. Tinea corporis, so a fungal infection of the skin uh, caused by dermatophytes, it tends to be relatively asymptomatic. We see that, for instance, actually harkening back to kids with atopic dermatitis, we'll see uh, tinea corporis far more often in kids with eczema because their barrier function isn't outstanding. There may actually be some reasons why their uh, immune system might be slow to fight off uh, dermatophyte uh, infection as well. But in many cases, if you have a kid with a lot of eczema and then one you know, surreptitious little uh, tinea corporis lesion in there, the tinea corporis is going to be less itchy than their eczema. So that's a relative, you know, clue. On the other hand, if they have a solitary lesion or just a couple of small tinea corporis lesions, sure, that they absolutely may find some irritation with it compared to their their baseline skin. And then, of course, the buzzword of, uh, you know, central clearing, right? So that is to say that the edge of this annular plaque is kind of advanced or, or heaped up a little bit, a little bit scalier. And then in the center, there's been sort of some recovery or maybe even some complete healing of the skin, so to speak. We typically see and think of with tinea, but you know, other annular conditions, specifically granulum annulari, which is really not rare in kids. We see it in kids, um, you know, not infrequently at all. You know, it'll also have uh, central clearing, sometimes actually more impressive central clearing than tinea corporis would. So again, the case is great and you have to think about it a little bit and that's great. That's why we're here. And when I see a case like this, you know, I typically think this looks like tinea or ringworm. You know, the parent always says like, does my kid have a ringworm? But I try to think about nummular eczema. I try to think about granuloma annulari. Are there other data points that you're looking to see? I feel like if I'm worried about tinea corpus, I start looking for tinea capitis. I start asking about a history of eczema, and I guess what are other data points that help you guide towards one diagnosis? Yeah, for sure. So again, uh, comorbidities that put them at risk for tinea are, are important, uh, and then uh, actually some are some kind of environmental triggers, including uh, pets. So we love our pets, but uh, pets are not an uncommon ca- uh, source of tinea. Many of our species of dermatophytes, you know, have the name Canis uh, within the genus or species and so forth. So it's not uncommon, uh, and especially the more exuberant cases of tinea. So for instance, probably the two most impressive phenotypes of fungal infections of the skin are, as you mentioned, tinea uh, capitis, so uh, you know, ringworm of the scalp, where there can be a loss of hair, which unfortunately can be can be permanent if it's not detected. And a subset of that is you know the dreaded carry-on, which essentially is where you have yes, you have a, a tinea capitis fungal infection, but you have kind of the double misfortune of developing a type four hypersensitivity 
to the dermatophytes. So you're both infected by this fungus, but you're actually, in fact, allergic to it. And that allergy causes a big part of that uh, carrion presentation. It's boggy. You get what we call spongiotic vesiculation, which is sort of the same reaction under the microscope that you see with, you know, poison ivy, because again, you're actually not just infected by this dermatophyte on the scalp, but you're actually allergic to it as well, which is sort of a, you know, cruel, cruel joke. And then the second kind of impressive presentation is that the further you get away from so-called human dermatophyte species to plant dermatophyte species, or even to soil, what we call saprophytic fungi, the more exuberant the reaction is going to be. Uh, and so in the, in the most extreme cases, uh, you know, we have what we call bolus or vesicular tinea. There's uh, a couple different species that, that can cause that uh, most, most commonly um, uh, trichophyton montagravenes or uh, trichophyton tonsrans. Those two species are, uh, you know, you can, you can kind of uh, pretend like you're a little smarter than you are when you see what looks like bolus changes within a plaque of ringworm. And you send a fungal culture and you, and you kind of tell your resident or med student or the parent that, you know, it's probably one of these two species uh, that potentially has implications in the dosing of um, the treatment. Um, so, again, there's a there's a broad range before we even talk about mimickers, before we talk about, you know, gosh, t- you know, granula manulari, uh, you know, uh, tinea can be its own, you know, kind of interesting condition. So. I'm curious, you mentioned sending a, a fungal culture. Um, you know, I think often we think of this as a, as a clinical diagnosis. Um, what are sort of the situations where you would think about doing further testing, looking with a woods lamp, something like that? Yeah, no, you know, I got to tell you, I think derm- dermatologists, um, maybe the further we get out from residency, from med school, the more we send cultures. Hmm. And that's probably increased in the past, gosh, maybe three, four years since susceptibilities have become available. So, you know, years ago, it was quite the fancy thing to actually get susceptibilities on a fungal culture. Now it's it's really not a big deal. And uh, that, that can matter for either medically complex patients. So it's uncommon that we're going to have a little kid who is on something for which P450 interactions are going to be a problem, but they're out there. I mean, they're out there. They're on, they're on meds. They're on meds we've barely heard of. They're on meds from, you know, multiple specialties at the same time. And so sometimes having susceptibilities actually really helps with, uh, you know, finding an option that's going to work if you, if you have limits. And then, you know, Tinea is the great uh, devil, the great enemy. I could show pictures. I have many pictures of cases that, uh, you know, shocked me that they were Tinea. And that's partly because it's so easy, the barrier of entry for topical steroids, which will change the presentation. We call it Tinea incognito, which is to say that even using a lot of over-the-counter uh, hydrocortisone, which has a bunch of brand names that we won't give, but basically over-the-counter strength hydrocortisone, or going to whoever, urgent care, ER, uh, pediatrician, another dermatologist, whatever, nobody gets off here. Uh, and, uh, you know, having gotten empiric topical steroids, which were used, you know, on, on something that actually happened to be a fungal infection of the skin, and it changes the whole architecture and can absolutely trick the best of us. So no, my threshold for doing KOH, or usually we actually use something called chlorazole black E, which is kind of a next generation uh, potassium hydroxide KOH. And that's just a little bit easier to see the fungal elements. 
Uh, unfortunately, it's flammable depending on your health situation. If you're in a hospital, you're probably going to have to keep it in like a locked safe. If you're outpatient, you probably get away with murder. But there's some implications with that. As we all know, with KOH, actually, you, you flame it. You know, back in the day, and I graduated med school in 01, you, you could find coworkers who smoked. In 2023, there really aren't too many smokers among your medical staff, hopefully. Uh, so you're literally trying to find like, you know, a lighter or something. So anyway, doing a stain in the office, we do that often. Um, but even if you don't have a microscope, even if you don't have a CLIA binder and you have tests that you take every year to prove that you're qualified to do it, then a culture is simple. And you can do a culture uh, with a sterile urine cup. You can do a culture with most culture swabs. So what you would use for a bacterial culture uh, most uh, microbiology labs will accept for a fungal culture. So, so you know, to actually get a fungal culture is is no big deal. I do it often when I have med students or residents with me. Sometimes they're like, "You wouldn't do that culture if I was here," and I was like, "Like, of course I would do it that culture." Uh, again, some of that is selection bias, but uh, but I do think that uh, you know it shouldn't be felt that that's some you know grandiose uh, test left for the experts. In fact, it can really get a head start on your patient uh, getting better, uh, especially again, for medically complex patients or for patients who, um, you know, have tinea capitis where there's a concern for, uh, for scarring and alopecia. So. Um, I do want to say that with dermatology, I feel like a picture is worth a thousand words. And it's interesting to do an audio only presentation when we're talking about dermatology, oh, of course. Of course. but yep. recognizing that maybe many of our listeners feel comfortable recognizing classical appearance of tinea corporis, but maybe not some of these atypical, what happens when someone's already put a steroid on it. Do you have images that you could share that we could put in the show notes? Yeah, I think we can find some. I'll, uh, I'll work on that. So yeah, in general, you know, You'll see polycyclic presentations, so kind of a clover type appearance, which is sort of, you know, kind of an edge of the tinea was able to um, grow from, um, you know, one corner of that ring. Uh, and then you can have, you know, multifocal areas where multi multiple areas of the body are infected. We don't see it so much in kids, but in adults, we'll see, you know, one big advancing, you know, three foot wide annular plaque. It might start like in the right chest and go along the flank and down the groin and to the right thigh and the left thigh to one butt cheek and up to the back. Uh, you know, uh, that, that turns out to be literally all of it was, you know, tinea. Uh, so, um, again, in kids, their immune systems generally are kind of a little bit better than that. They're able to kind of fight things off, but, um, and maybe while we're talking about different presentations and different images, one of the big movements I know in medical education is getting a better understanding of different skin tones and how different clinical uh, uh, presentations are different in different skin tones. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is tinea one that might present differently based on um, tone of skin? Yeah, well, so there are a couple couple issues. Uh, obviously, the appearance of it can appear different between patients of various Fitzpatrick phototypes or various complexions. But actually, the greater premise is a step before that, which is to say that we see great uh, you know differences in susceptibility to fungal infections among uh, various ethnicities. So African Americans have much higher rates of tinea capitis. It's not socioeconomic. Uh, 
nobody's doing anything wrong. Uh, it, it's, it, it really doesn't reflect differences in grooming practices, even acknowledging that African-Americans typically wash their hair, you know, far less frequently because of dryness than, for instance, a lot of Caucasians or other ethnicities would. And so, it, and there actually is some some interesting science that I think is, is kind of like, I guess it hasn't captured interest beyond kind of the extremes. So for instance, when I see the extremes, even though it's not a superficial fungal infection, we know, for instance, that patients of, of Filipino descent have much higher risks of, of serious complications for coccidiomycosis, right? So the genetics of that have not been entirely determined, but uh, for years, my subspecialty clinic was shared with infectious disease. And if they had a patient, if we had a patient with uh, coccidiomycosis that can have skin presentations, they would essentially be on lifelong azoles just for being of Filipino descent. And then, you know, part of the reason we think actually African-Americans have a higher rate of tinea capitis, you know, hopefully not, again, life-threatening extreme cases such as uh, coccidiomycosis we see with patients of Filipino descent. But actually some of the underlying science we, we believe, and this always sounds a little like you're going off the tracks here, but it's some of it is probably related to positive blood type. RH positive blood type probably confers some small increased risk of fungal infection. Again, there are all sorts of bogus things related to uh, supposed blood types that, uh, you know, you can kind of start doing uh, astrology with blood types and find books and all these things that are, are in no way accurate. But there does seem to be at least some epidemiologic link between uh, having a, a RH positive blood type and having a higher propensity to having, you know, for instance, tinea capitis in particular. Wow. So, and then the continues uh, where, again, our African-American patients not only have kind of an increased susceptibility, but that increased susceptibility probably puts them at increased risk again for carry-on. That is the kind of more exuberant, boggy presentation of tinea capitis because the mechanism behind, you know, that complication is likely related to having caught, you know, tinea capitis more than once, where, again, it became sort of a sensitizing event that kind of the second time around or later in the initial presentation of tinea capitis, you now develop this kind of comorbid type four hypersensitivity reaction where again, now you have all those changes, which can, you know, significantly increase the risk of scarring. So yeah, massive implications for, uh, for uh, this condition, you know, how it appears to, and then of course, you know, social determinants of health in terms of, you know, are, are patients of color able to, uh, get seen in a timely fashion? Are they uh, diagnosed, you know, as early as they could be? Are they referred for specialty care if they need it? And then, gosh, if I write a prescription that's going to work, uh, are they going to get it filled? Is, is it going to be filled by their insurance company? Are they going to get some pushback for it? And, and so, you know, it goes from every aspect of this care. So for sure. No, thank you. Appreciate that. I think it's an important part of dermatology and something we try to bring up in every conversation and episode to address uh, acknowledge health disparities, address them, um, and, and provide some education for for us and our listeners. As far as you know, going on to access treatment, we love talking about treatment because we're problem solvers here on the show. Let's talk about treatment. Presuming that we feel pretty confident, tinea uh, corporis, and right now we see no evidence for tinea capitis. What's your go-to antifungal? Is there a reason to pick one subclass? What's kind of the the first thing you reach for? And how do you counsel a parent or patient on treatment for tinea? Yeah, absolutely. So talking about, you know, topicals first. So it is always important to remember that tinea by definition is essentially a 
uh, dermatophyte condition. So that's not yeast. And that's what's important to remember then is that things like nystatin are actually not going to be effective for it. So they're very effective for yeasts. They're very effective for candida, malesthesia, a few of the yeast species that can cause things like diaper rash, diaper candidiasis with satellite lesions. They can cause, you know, thrush, a number of fungal infections of the skin. Uh, and those can be treated again with, with medicines like that. But for actual tinea epidermophyte infections, unfortunately, you know, that class of medicine, uh, nystatin is not going to be effective. Um, and unfortunately, it can delay. It can, you know, now, unfortunately, things are advancing, get second lesions. Families are being diligent. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do, but it's the wrong med. So in terms of treatments we typically use, you know, the azoles, uh, uh, in particular, ketoconazole is probably the first line for a few reasons. As a topical, it's cheap, it is uh, generic. The actual mechanism of azole antifungals, basically, it's, it's akin to beta-lactam antibiotics where you're basically punching holes in the cell wall of fungi. That, that's a good, you know, fungicidal type of uh, mechanism. And, and so we use it often. Ketoconazole actually has a little bit of 5-lipoxygenase activity. So if you go to like your grocery store or to a drugstore, you'll see ketoconazole shampoo on sale and it's actually for psoriasis. It's, it's not for a fungal infection. And that's because, again, uh, ketoconazole in particular has a little bit of 5-alipoxygenase activity, meaning it has a little bit of an anti-inflammatory uh, mechanism separate from poking holes in the walls of epidermophytes. So, and actually, most other azoles have far less anti-inflammatory activity than ketoconazole has. That's why it's kind of an old standby, old favorite. Other azoles are fine. Again, uh, new proprietary ones. In many cases, the difference actually has to do with kind of the size of the molecule and the stability of the molecule that an application sort of lasts longer and thus is more effective. Sometimes that can translate to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for some um, proprietary uh, name brand. And then uh, that that you can kind of read from my tone in most cases, probably not, not worth it, right? So... And then, you know, so terbenafine, you can get over-the-counter topical terbenafine, and it is uh, another uh, relatively good option. The problem with terbenafine is it does actually have holes in its spectrum. So I know Dr. Hain, for instance, is a uh, hospitalist uh, in this crowd. And, and so if you think of if you've ever had a kiddo who unfortunately had a, an invasive fungal infection and they had like fungal sepsis, you know, we don't reach for IV, IV terbenafine. I actually don't think it exists. And that's because... <laughs> Yeah, it actually has holes in its spectrum. So believe it or not, actually Canada is very resistant to uh, terbinafine intrinsically. So terbinafine is fine uh, and it's it's a reasonable option, but it does have a few holes in its spectrum that the, the azoles don't. And then there's some... We tend not to use these in kids uh, because kids' immune systems, again, we can only make so many assumptions, but in general, uh, kids' immune systems uh, tend to help us enough that we don't have to use things like, for instance, gentian violet, which is a classic treatment for uh, elderly diabetics with uh, difficult to clear fungal toe web space infections that can actually become secondarily infected with pseudomonas, uh, can be part of what leads to, you know, diabetic foot ulcers and amputations and even worse. Again, in most cases, kids, even kids with immunodeficiencies, aren't going to require um, things like that. Um, that's kind of a scorched earth that uh, keeps it stained for, you know, weeks and weeks, can actually unfortunately have some secondary irritation. And then, of course, just, you know, for historical sake and 
you know, kind of humorous, although it's not humorous back in the day. Uh, and I mean, up until like the seventies and eighties, you know, tinea corporis and tinea capitis was often treated with in-office uh, radiation. So they would turn hmm. on their uh, x-ray machine and, and give, you know, whatever, some portion of a gray to treat some fungal infection. And so now I, I get to meet, I, I take care of uh, lots of kids, but I do see some adults and I get to take care of skin cancers and patients who, who decades ago had had, you know, radiation wow. treatment for uh, a fungal infection that was, you know, woefully inappropriate. So, but, you know, it was easy. It required very little compliance with treatment. Uh, and if a family member asks, is this contagious, do you do any other counseling in addition to topical treatment? Yeah, it is. It actually is uh, contagious for sure. In fact, that's comes down to, you know, some of the RH positive blood type stuff I was talking about. Some of that comes from epidemiologic studies where, again, the positive blood types uh, in a daycare or in a home, family members, mixed family, uh, families of, of, you know, different parents and so forth. You know, that's where it comes from. And again, that's where we talk about, you know, potentially fomites. Fomites can include pets. So, um, you know, uh, not that every kid with tinea needs to um, have their kids all have their pets taken to the veterinarian but you know fomites can absolutely be a pattern and then family members can be fomites so if we have kids who are just impossible to clear sometimes we do talk about treating close contacts that's not usually from day one but uh, again especially you know trachyte and tonsurans which is a common cause microspore and canis that are uh, two that we know are are just perfectly happy to kind of have a carriage state um, that family members may may actually be uh, kind of reinfecting the patient who is unfortunately having a little higher susceptibility than those who are who are more of the carriers. And is there a risk for resistance with these topical medications? I guess I think about like the people who are self-using, self-medicating with it. Is it a concern if people are just saying, you know what, the minute I start to see it come back, I'm going to start applying it again? Yeah, you know, not so much. Um, you know, the biggest issue with it is that you know, some, especially the over account over the counter strength uh, options may not be as potent as the prescription options. The other issue is when I when we write the prescriptions, you know, my sig is always take it use it until two to three weeks after clearance, and then if there's any even a hint of recurrence, then do it again for, again, a few weeks after you're sure it's gone. But in terms of resistance, yeah, again, I talked about how we can do cultures and susceptibilities, and that actually is no longer like some, you know, crazy uh, test to do uh, anymore. And most of the time, it's actually more of an inherent resistance to certain species of epidermophyte that are that are uh, part of, um, you know, that, that have that resistance. So not, not quite so judgy as we get to be with our, you know, poor stewardship of uh, antibiotics. This tends to be more, uh, it was a bad choice because of, uh, you know, that particular uh, species um, and the option you chose first or whatever. So. Well, you gave us a really great overview of, of topical antifungals and, and treatments that, that we've used in, in the past that maybe aren't uh, recommended anymore. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, a case where you may have someone with really extensive disease or perhaps they have tinea capitis. Can you tell us a little bit about when you would use oral antifungals um, in your pediatric patients? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one of those things where you usually don't need to, but then once you need to, you need to, uh, if, if it, that's said correctly. So hair bearing areas tend not to have very good penetration with topical antifungals. Um, that same applies for nails. 
Um, although in kids, you know, we have some, uh, I know we're talking about, you know, kind of ringworm and tinea, but for our onychomycosis, uh, families that are very diligent with using cycloprox and some of the lacquer type antifungals, they actually really can be very effective. In fact, the data in kids is pretty good. Uh, when used, you know, kind of correctly. But as for oral options, yeah, we, we typically have a low threshold to start them if patients have uh, involvement over hair bearing areas or they have large areas, or like I said, if they have glitches, anything that's going to be you know, a problem with getting treatment uh, to the area, if they've got some comorbidities, which might actually include uh, bad atopic dermatitis. So in terms of empiric initial choices, you know, we talked about how topical ketoconazole of the various options tends to be first. Well, unfortunately, the azoles are generally quite safe, but can cause uh, idiosyncratic uh, liver failure. It's fortunately very rare. Uh, we certainly, you know, think about it and, and uh, have that concern. It's far more common in uh, oral ketoconazole. So systemic oral ketoconazole really isn't a thing anymore. It's one of those things, yeah, I think you actually have to like call the CDC for compassionate use. If you write a prescription for oral ketoconazole, your pharmacist is going to think you're an idiot and uh, probably wonder what else you're doing wrong. Mm. And so it's essentially, you know, out of there. So in terms of options, we use uh, oral fluconazole, oral itraconazole. Those tend to be probably the two first line uh, that generally safe in kids. Again, there are P450 interactions. And again, that's, that's sort of different in terms of causing liver issues than kind of the rare idiosyncratic, uh, you know, more severe fulminant disease that can occur. Again, very rare, fortunately, but it can happen. Again, the other issue uh, is, again, obviously P450 interactions, which in most cases, you know, again, a lot of complicated kids out there. We got kids on Coumadin. We got kids on, you know, medications that uh, are, are uh, you know, don't have quite the therapeutic indices that we'd like that we have to think about uh, interactions. And so uh, sometimes uh, if we can't use azoles, you know, time-honored griziofulvin is an option. We tend not to use it nearly as often. It unfortunately has a lot more in the way of side effects. It's relatively photosensitizing. That actually does include in our patients of color. So you could have a Fitzpatrick phototype 6 African-American patient. That means incredibly dark-complected. Um, if you think of someone, you know, in Africa, that complexion, that's kind of Fitzpatrick phototype 6. And if you give someone uh, griziofulvin, uh, even with that dark complexion, you don't warn them to uh, wear hats, shade, sunscreen, you can give them their first sunburn of their life uh, with griziofulvin. Um, it can cause some headaches. It can cause some other side effects. But, you know, it's something we'll use probably more often in adults is when I, I might write a prescription a couple times a year. And it's usually for a medically complex adult whose drug interactions prevent me from you know, they kind of corner me into using cruciaform. You know, classically, like when I was a young pediatrician, so I, I practiced in pediatrics for four years after my peds residency before I went back and did derm. And for decades, Griziofulvin had been kind of the nice empiric option uh, because it's kind of in and out pretty quickly. So griziofulvin had been something a pediatrician might use for a week or two while they're waiting for a culture to come back. Um, and, and that's reasonable, but, uh, but again, because of the side effects and, and even with my doom and gloom proclamations about rare complications with azoles, they, they really do tend to be safe. So they've probably replaced griziofulvin as, as kind of an empiric option. You actually sometimes have a hard time finding griziofulvin and then terbenafine, oral terbenafine, uh, you know, certainly an option. We certainly, we use it usually first line for onychomycosis, but that has a lot more to do with the, uh, pharmacokinetics of the medication in the nails and in the skin and that 
Uh, if you give, for instance, six weeks of terbinafine, oral terbinafine, it's going to last and have kind of a fungicidal effect, you know, for a few months. Uh, and, and that's really the, the benefit of it. You can do what we call pulsed azole therapy. So again, back to fluconazole and intraconazole, it can be given. So for instance, one week, uh, a lot of times we'll do like maybe one or two weeks to start uh, daily use for one or two weeks, and then might take a couple week break and then do one week a month for a few months. And again, the pharmacokinetics of azoles and the way they kind of sit in the skin and last in the skin allows you to do that. So if you were to give, for instance, one, one week a month for four months, you're basically getting, you know, four or five months worth of antifungal effect. If instead you gave those four weeks in a row, um, all at once, you're getting, you know, kind of two months, maybe one month and three weeks worth of effect. So we do a lot of pulsed uh, azole therapy. Again, unfortunately, you can imagine that becomes compliance, understanding, you got to make sure that the way you describe it to the patient is explained, the, what you write on your SIG actually gets cons- uh, transcribed by the pharmacist. You know, we usually get like 140 characters, a bit like the like Twitter. <laughs> and uh, sometimes the pharmacist, unfortunately, kind of freelance a little bit and they'll, you know, shorten it. So if we have a long, you know, 139 well-crafted character SIG, sometimes, I mean, especially for topicals, this is, I guess, is a side rant, all of this long diatribe of what they're supposed to do. And when the patient brings their tube in the next visit, it says apply twice daily. Uh, and it's like, that's not what I said, but, but anyway. When you start a patient on the orals for tinea capitis, two rapid fire questions. One, lab monitoring. Is that out the door now? We don't have to worry about that. And two, do you do uh, like an adjunctive shampoo as well or no? Sure. So actually, let's do the adjunctive shampoos first. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I do a lot of salicylic acid shampoo. Um, 3% is often covered by Medicaid plans, at least in Ohio. Uh, where I practice, and then I'll alternate that with uh, topical antifungal. So the salicylic acid is going to kind of descale. It's going to let the topicals, the shampoos um, work a little bit better. And so, yeah, I might give a ketoconazole shampoo. Yeah, you're getting a little bit of antifungicidal effect, but remember, you're also getting some anti-inflammatory effect, which is probably what I'm really after. When when the azoles that are, again, in the case of topotinia, Capitus, when those uh, antifungals are, you know, getting through the system and, and kind of destroying the cell wall of fungi, there is some irritation. There is some irritation that occurs. That's sort of a good thing that's happening, um, but it's it's not a bad thing to add an anti-inflammatory agent like salicylic acid or ketoconazole. So depending on how often a patient is washing their hair, again, that varies quite a bit by hairstyle, ethnicity, and so forth. I might have them alternate salicylic acid shampoo one night with ketoconazole the next night. Again, the the take home on that is that that by itself is not adequate. You definitely need more than a a topical or shampoo for tinea capitis. But um, yeah, it's a it's a great adjunct. So in lab monitoring, do do I have to order LFTs anymore? Sure. So again, there, there's always question of risk tolerance. Uh, you know, azoles are, are actually really, as I said, I started out with, oh gosh, rare cases of fulminant hepatic failure. So, you know, I actually do skin checks on a patient who I believe in her 20s developed fulminant hepatic uh, failure and needed a liver transplant. So I see her for her routine skin checks 
uh, because she unfortunately has an elevated risk of skin cancer because we're now immunosuppressing her, of course, uh, because of her uh, uh, elevated lifetime risk of malignancy. Now, you know, this is an anecdote that that never happens. It's fortunately very rare. And I don't want the anecdote of, oh, my patient I see every year always makes you say, gosh, how, how, uh, much do I want to, you know, check labs on these? The truth is, unfortunately, the most serious complications, you're not going to have excellent lab monitoring as a way of, of sort of uh, detecting it early. You're not going to have this window of intervention that lab monitoring is going to work well. And in many cases of, you know, fulminant hepatic failure, it's the model of uh, you ate a mushroom you weren't supposed to eat. And, and now your, your, you know, liver basically starts digesting itself. Uh, and, uh, and so lab monitoring along the way is, is of, uh, you know, there's relatively, you know, low yield that said, you know, classically for back when we do grazia fold and after about six weeks, we would typically do lab monitoring. And then, uh, certainly in adults still, when we treat uh, onychomycosis, we'll do lab monitoring if we're using uh, terbinafine. And so if a patient is, is on it for months and months, well, you could say clearly they're doing fine. They've been on it for months and months, um, but it's probably not an unreasonable thing to check labs. Again, especially if they're on uh, medication that's also hepatically metabolized, um, if there was a low interaction risk. Um, or, you know, gosh, sometimes I'll see a four or five-year-old, at least in Ohio, we typically will check a CBC and sometimes a lead depending on zip code and so forth. And it's not the worst thing to add on uh, transaminases. So anyway, in terms of uh, what, what is mandatory, uh, lab, there, there's plenty of support for not following labs, uh, especially if you're able to get in and get out. That's why we often will do the pulse therapy. Um, but if someone uh, is medically complex, if uh, someone's going to be on it for a prolonged period of time, um, it's it's uh, certainly it's very reasonable to consider doing doing lab monitoring. So thinking, we've talked a little bit about the treatment management when we are pretty confident that it is a tinea corporis diagnosis. Can we go back and talk a little bit about some of the mimickers? And on my perspective, I would love to hear more about granuloma annulare because I just do not feel confident at all in that diagnosis. Yeah, no, sounds good. So again, that's one of the the big mimickers. In fact, I'll, I'll say that a lot of times when I'm seeing a new patient with kind of slam dunk granuloma annulare, uh, and, and for instance, grant slam dunk would mean that there's really no epidermal change. And what I mean by that is if you rubbed kind of your your finger, maybe gloved, maybe not gloved over tinea, it's going to feel rough, somewhat sandpapery. Uh, probably even the quote unquote central uh, clearing areas are is probably not going to be normal. It's also going to be just at least slightly scaly. The pigmentation may be off. Um, it'll certainly be spared from, you know, kind of that leading edge. On the other hand, granuloma annulare, it's going to have uh, basically, it's an expansion of uh, dermal cells. Um, you basically have uh, macrophages in the dermis that have uh, kind of engulfed a little collagen and, and reproduced uh, uh, almost a, a scar-like response under the skin. But the very top surface of the skin is going to be smooth. There's going to be a bump undulation as if you had like, you know, stuck a BB under the skin and shoved it through the skin to a point where you couldn't tell that you had had, uh, uh, you know, made a little cut to get it under there. But the actual surface overlying the skin of granuloma annulare will, will be smooth, even though there's an undulating surface. And so, uh, again, it'll often be the, it'll be a prettier ring 
than uh, ringworm will be. And so granulomanularity is kind of an interesting diagnosis. It's, you know, there's some interesting science in that it probably has something to do with uh, IGF-1 receptors uh, on the macrophages that, uh, and when we think that because uh, patients with, uh, adult patients with diabetes get it, sometimes they'll get it over large portions of their body. Um, although we'll also see patients with who don't have diabetes who can have severe cases of it as well. Uh, we also see it in pregnant women. Um, it'll often go away without treatment, you know, weeks after delivery. So that again, lots of growth factors binding up to these IGF-1 receptors on the macrophages. The macrophages, you know, do as they're told when their growth factors are, are activated. And so, uh, you know, we'll see it at, at various ages in kids. And it often follows what we call a Kebnerization pattern. That's a word we think of with psoriasis. It basically is why you get psoriasis over your elbow, elbow and knees. And that is, you know, you sit with your elbow on, on the table, your jeans kind of tent over your knees. So there's friction, there's relative friction and trauma over your elbows and knees. And so that's where psoriasis likes to go. It's similar with granulomanulari. The back of the wrists, you know, areas that are, are you know, the shins, uh, you bonk your shin and a couple, couple weeks later, you notice granulomanulari, um, actually kind of the hinges of the body over the elbows, you know, in the armpits, actually back to the case, the fact that it was behind the elbow, the armpits, that's a place that uh, granulomanulari loves, um, for instance. So, so those are some of the, the features. And again, it's, you, you, tr you try to get it right. That's why a culture is useful. But if there's nothing to scrape, boy, that, that's a pretty good sign that it's granulomanulari. So again, back to that, like, you know, BB under the skin analogy. If you're actually getting flakes to send uh, for a culture, yeah. Tinea is a good thought. It, it might be that you might consider, you know, giving a topical azole while you're waiting for the culture to come back. But if if sending a culture would entail, you know, blood, uh, then you may very well may have granulomanulari, and empiric treatment with with a topical steroid may be very reasonable. And it tends to be once once you have the diagnosis, we tend to use medium and, and relatively high strength topical steroids. Again, we have a lot of respect for steroids and kids, I think more so than Dr. Burke. He said he's going to put it on everything. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, with, uh, for all the, for all the uh, volume to body surface area considerations of kids, we try to you know, dole out steroids uh, only when we need them. But for granulomanulari, because we're trying to chase away macrophages that are a couple millimeters under the skin, we tend to reach for a little bit stronger, um, stronger uh, uh, steroids. Uh, for more severe cases, so for instance, if you have a, had a kiddo with granulomary on their face, uh, which can happen, um, you know, there's no FDA approved treatments, but actually hydroxychloroquine uh, can be effective uh, for it. It's one of the time honored uh, validated uh, uses for it. And then, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, we'll say like an older kid who could tolerate it, uh, at least in dermatology, we'll use intralesional steroids mm. that needs to be kind of done right with caution. So you don't give them a dent give them a scar from it. But, uh, and then for adults, we use all sorts of crazy stuff. We do a lot of, uh, ultraviolet phototherapy. Actually, we'll use that for teenagers too, in a tough case, but basically there's certain wavelengths of light that chase white blood cells out of the skin. And we're able to kind of give specific doses that don't mutate DNA. And uh, we use that for a lot of conditions and granulomanulari is one of them. So, I remember when I was a resident, I did a pediatric dermatology rotation and we saw granuloma annulari twice, and it was both referred by the primary care doctor for treatment-resistant tinea, 
Yep. And so I always think of those as like the mimickers of if what you're expecting doesn't work. And 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 to my defense of putting the steroids on everyone, my oh yeah, just absolutely. I it's, it's I just want to share with our listeners my algorithm, as I mentioned to you, is is uh, uh, putting a steroid, taking a photo, steroids for two weeks, bring them back. If worse, antifungal for two weeks, bring them back. If that doesn't work, dermatology referral. And I've uh, I've never gotten a diagnosis wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you the go. dermatologist usually yeah. ends up my mouth um, if I do anything wrong. Well, you know, there's some obscure ones that, that you know, so subcutaneous lupus is uh, very annular. It could look like a, a, a ringworm. Um, so that, that one might take a little longer to get better, but uh, but but that's fair. Um, I was going to say in terms of kind of a pearl in this uh, in this realm, what I'll sometimes do if I really am having to hedge is I'll do a few weeks of, of a topical azole, for instance, ketoconazole. And that very same day, I may send them with a script for a mid-potency topical steroid. Uh, triamcinolone actually, uh, you know, is, is kind of a time-honored, uh, you know, kind of a big gun for kids, but relatively safe. And, I, and I'll tell them they can go ahead and use the ketoconazole, you know, twice a day for, say, two, three weeks. And then after that period of time, uh, they can add the topical antifungal where they're doing both together. Now, there are combined products that have, for instance, clotrimazole and betamethasone. There's some other combined products. Most dermatologists, is, uh, most, most of us don't love those because the, the match isn't great. So for instance, betamethasone is a very strong steroid. That's It's fluorinated. It, if you want to thin the skin, that's like a, a great one to use, you know? So usually that's not a goal. That's 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 a complication, right? So, so we tend not to like those combined products. But again, if you're doing a few weeks of uh, topical azole, I mentioned that it has some anti-inflammatory properties. So, you know, you can sleep well at night that you are actually helping the patient regardless. And then when a culture comes back or even just empirically adding a topical steroid after it's had a few weeks for the azole to have its effect and use them together is a very reasonable approach. I, I would call that good care. If it doesn't get better, absolutely send them my way. I'll be happy to see them. And, and then I'll consider some of the more obscure things because they've got at that point, they've gotten gotten great care. Um, especially if you've gotten a, had gotten a culture along the way and you had that approach and they're not getting better, boy, that's someone we'll be really happy to see. I always felt the combination products were just intellectually cheating, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. No, internationally, again, I, I did my uh, residency in Los Angeles and we would have patients on, you know, Quadriderm, which is an ultra potent topical steroid an antifungal and antibacterial and anti-inflammatory. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's it, actually, if, if my job could be replaced by like a quadruple strength topical, you know, that actually be really great with, for people with like vasculitis and, and syphilis and, and uh, you know, lupus and some of the other serious things I, I take, I, I guess I would go find some other job, but unfortunately, yeah, that the combo doesn't, doesn't quite work all that well. And a lot of times though, as much as they're helping, they're hurting. So yeah. we will try to avoid those. <laughs> um, earlier in the episode, you mentioned a couple other things on your differential. I think you mentioned numular eczema, psoriasis. Uh, I just want to make sure we touch on some of the other common mimickers that, that you, you think about um, uh, when you're thinking about tinea corporis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so psoriasis is, is rare, but it's not that rare in kids. It, it, there's a big flip between kids and adults in that, you know, we see a lot of eczema in kids. We don't see much psoriasis. 
And then kind of in the second, third decade of life, so late teens, that actually will switch where we stop seeing as much eczema in adults. We see a heck of a lot of psoriasis where, where there's kind of this split. And so a solitary uh, uh, psoriatic plaque, uh, you can get a, your first you know, bad luck of having psoriasis, which you know, has a lot of genetic uh, HLA uh, risk factors. There are some meds that can cause it. We typically don't give those to kids. But, but anyway, there's a lot of factors why psoriasis can occur. But you can absolutely have a pattern where you get like one annular tinea corporis looking plaque that turns out to be psoriasis. And, and that's rare, but it's not that rare. Uh, and again, that it typically won't have central sparing. Uh, it'll be ridiculously scaly, right? So the patients will tell you, like, you know, if it happens to be like in a teacher, teenager and they shave, it'll scale back up like the same day. That, that actually gets back to the pathophysiology of psoriasis, where obviously we can have all sorts of autoimmune conditions in the skin. You can have swelling between the cells. That's eczema. You can have, you know, degranulation of mast cells and eosinophils. That's hives. You can have you know, destruction of hair follicles, that's alopecia areata. But, but actually the autoimmune activity that happens with psoriasis, the uh, keratinocytes basically start growing in uncontrolled, unregulated fashion. So it's not cancerous, but their differentiation becomes very poor and they basically grow about a month's worth of keratin every day. And, uh, and again, so, so psoriasis will be far scalier than, than tinea um, as, as, you know, as kind of a, general appearance. Uh, Numbular eczema will be incredibly itchy. It will be just unbelievably itchy and relatively treatment resistant. So especially to like over-the-counter topical steroids or low-potency topical steroids, it often just won't even touch it. So response to empiric empiric therapies before you had met the patient might be a hint that you're dealing with numbular eczema. They may have some of those, uh, you know, so-called Hannafin criteria, which are the minor diagnostic criteria that help us decide some, someone might have eczema, things like the Denny Morgan fold pleats under their skin and hyperlinear palms and all sorts of fun things that yeah, I can see a patient who doesn't happen to have eczema. I catch them on a good day and they have eczema, but they didn't have eczema that day. And we can go and look for a few of these and, and have a pretty good probability that yes, they actually did have eczema and we're going to start these treatments. And then, uh, and then, you know, one other, I, I guess, mimicker, but kind of actually within tinea would be, uh, you know, tinea versicolor, which is actually a yeast form. So it's not a dermatophyte. We typically do treat it with azoles and it's got more of a polycyclic, small little circles. They're, they're thin, they, they scale very little. Uh, it's hard to call them really ringworm and they, and they don't really centrally clear. Uh, but uh, you can use topical uh, ketoconazole. You can use topical shampoos, including uh, selenium sulfide. It's yeah, that that one's a little less favored um, in in my own personal preference. And that the mechanism of selenium sulfide is basically to make yeast slippery. That's kind of a stupid mechanism of action. I like things that poke holes in cell walls more than things that make things slippery. That's just like, that's just not how we roll, but, but, but it can be done, but for more widespread tinea versicolor, we'll often do. And, and again, if you've seen this before, you know where I'm going with this, but if you haven't, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm kind of uh, crazy. And that what we'll do is we'll give two to four pills, like the total prescription and we'll have the patient uh, often use itraconazole or fluconazole, but we'll have the patient take, uh, you know, maybe 100 to 200, maybe higher, depending on severity and their size. Uh, and then they'll basically exercise. They'll, they'll exercise, they'll build up a sweat. 
and then we, uh, yeah, actually based on the face of my hosts, um, I guess they've never heard this. So, so they basically, they build up a sweat and then we actually want them to wallow in their sweat for about six to eight hours. Uh, at this point, you know, the parents are like, are you crazy? Is, are, you know, did we, uh, I wanted JD or Turk and I got <laughs> the janitor, I guess, you know, but, uh, but anyway, what a reference. Um, and so what happens is you're actually excreting the uh, the azol up through the pilosebaceous unit into the follicle, and that's actually far more effective than applying it topically or just taking it um, by actually sweating the medication out about an hour after you take it when peak concentration is high. Uh, it works well, and then and then you take a shower because you probably smelled bad, and then you do that a week or two later. So you, uh, you you could argue there's maybe some benefit that you're getting a teenager to work out. You're having the parents tell your teenager to work out. The wall and the sweat part's a little annoying, but this is the time-honored way of treating uh, tinea versicolor, especially when it's widespread. It can can wrap up onto the cheeks and and neck, and it can be you know it can end up occupying you know fifteen twenty percent of a teenager's body surface area where their complexion actually looks different um, after treatment. Um, so that is a great great pearl. I don't I feel like I would have remembered that from med school. I don't think I, I I'm not sure if I've been taught that. That's great. Yeah, I, I promise I, I didn't make that <laughs> up. It's it's kind of time honored. And then again back to uh, genetic differences. Some people are prone to it and it's probably not a bad idea to use for instance a ketoconazole shampoo a couple times a week and let it kind of sit on their skin. Less well studied, but it does seem to be effective for patients who get recurrent uh, episodes, which again, we, we don't know the genetics of it as well as we'd like, other than it probably is a little bit more common in Caucasians. So uh, when I when I was in the military, uh, you know, there's a Hawaiian name. I, I, don't, I don't know the Hawaiian language name for it, but it's for tinea versicolor. And it basically means that rash that all the white people hmm. get um, in Hawaiian, right? So there, there are definitely some racial differences in, in a lot of these things we've talked about. And that includes actually tinea versicolor that does seem to uh, affect, actually, I see it in every ethnicity, but maybe it's a bit more common in Caucasians. So, or at least the Hawaiian language tells us so. so. I, uh... I think we need to see that uh, 140 character SIG for having the patient wallow in their sweat. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, it's one of those things, if you don't explain it to the, you know, the pharmacists, they're like, oh yeah, we know, we know what's up. But if you, when you explain it to the patients, they're, they're a little bit like, oh, that, that's different. But yeah, that's where I try to tell them the whole mechanism. We're literally trying to get it up. You know, it's like unclogging pores that are full of these yeasts and uh, you can't really get them in from the inside. Our skin is well designed that, um, you know, we have a lot of one way, uh, one way valves in our skin. You know, we think of sucking chest wounds with pneumothoraces, but that's kind of every pore in terms of what we call tracheal keratin and the way our pores are designed that things from the outside don't get in and things from the inside, you know, get out. So take take advantage of that. So I wanted to jump in on one other question with the numular eczema presentation, which I haven't seen that often. Um, and if you have a 14 year old who has a annular lesion, let's say that is very itchy. Is the common presentation, this patient has a long history of eczema and this is a new variant of their eczema as numular? Is it a new presentation of suddenly numular eczema? Because you mentioned that atopic dermatitis can actually be a risk factor for tinea. I guess, how does that history of eczema play in and how does numular eczema typically present? Yeah. And, and that is why this is fun, right? Because it's like, oh man, we're really, this is like boss level stuff because I'm saying that the people who, you know, your mimickers are sort of risk factors for each other. So um, this definitely overlaps. There's no, there's no perfect answer here, but yeah, in general, 
Numular eczema will be its own thing. We'll see it in teenagers. We see it in kids. We'll often see it in teenagers. We'll see it in adults who never had any prior history of eczema. You try to beat out of uh, some teenager that did you have eczema when you were a baby? And they're like, no. And, and uh, uh, you know, they may not have other signs of atopy. Um, there often will be a family history that it usually still has, you know, a prophylaxis basis. That's the gene that underlies a lot of our skin barrier issues that relate to eczema. Um, but yeah, it's it's often going to be its own thing. That will be their eczema is is numular eczema. And again, we tend not to have, you know, years and years of numular eczema or decades and decades of numular eczema. We're often able to kind of put it into a little bit more of a long-term remission, whereas our kids with severe atopic dermatitis where we're using, you know, biologics, you know, new medications and things like that, because we have to, even though numular eczema can be severe, it can be very symptomatic and very itchy. Um, it tends to be something we can actually fix, which is, which is nice. So maybe one other final question we, we related to, when I think of the mimickers, I often kind of think of these treatment resistant tinea where, you know, if you're using the wrong treatment, it might not be tinea. That's when I start thinking about the mimickers sometimes, but for people with treatment resistant tinea, is there ever tinea corporis that you're treating with an oral antifungal or is it typically if a topical antifungal is not working for tinea corporis, that's when you really should start thinking about these mimickers we've discussed? No, it really does go both ways, especially when you pull up, you know, the concept of fomites, close contact carriers, a beloved pet that, uh, you know, they keep getting reinfected from. Um, and then, you know, compliance issues, uh, taking the medicine, you know, again, we're, we're all in the same business too many, too many parents will trust their 11 year old to, to do it all. You know, let's do pulse therapy, Timmy. So I want you to take this one day a week for the first week of every month. And then we're going to pause it for three weeks. And, and, uh, and yeah, you haven't cleaned your room in six months, but I'm going to trust you to do that. Uh, so again, this is, this is what we do and that's okay. Kids are awesome. Sometimes their parents are all right too. So, but um, so all, all of those variables can come into play where, again, you question whether the diagnosis is accurate. The diagnosis may be absolutely accurate, and then you could have a susceptibility issue with it. You may not have a high enough dose. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uncommon to have an immunodeficiency present you know, with uh, resistant tinea, but, but it certainly is possible that that would be an uncommon presentation, but um, we'll, we'll see that more often in adults, sometimes adults with gammopathies, um, with IgG subclass deficiencies can sometimes have, you know, kind of holes in their immune system that leads to, you know, more, more stubborn infections. But again, we're, we're kind of really getting into corner cases at that point. And that might be the scenario where, uh, again, the better the pediatric dermatologist, the less biopsies you do. Um, but, you know, and in fact, if I biopsy something that comes back as tinea uh, corporis, I'm usually like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I couldn't That's figure that out. I needed to biopsy it. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Absolutely. We, we do plenty of embarrassing things in our job. Um, but it also may make me think back, well, gosh, I thought it was that. I'd given the medicine. What's going on? Is there is there some fomite? Is there some factor I'm not thinking about? That, that's maybe the kind of thing where we're saying, you know, we're actually going to treat the whole darn family, which is probably a few times a year that we'll do that. So uh, that's actually with species too, where we start to think about, um, depending on which species we might think about, ones that are a little more fastidious and might require, um, you know, treatment of close family members. That makes sense. 
Awesome. Wow, this has been such a helpful episode. So many um, things that I didn't even realize I didn't know about Tinea Crophorus. Um, so this has been really helpful. Uh, I think as we wrap up, Craig, we were hoping you could tell us uh, what are your main take-home points for, for our listeners today? I know there have been a lot, but um, any, any key take-home points you want to um, you want to share with everyone? I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things as we get further into our career, I think differential is, you know, I remember being like a third year med student and you want to go in and know what it is and you're smart and you get to be the hero to that student, to that patient. And then the attending comes in and it turns out you're wrong or whatever, but, but you didn't really care because you had that moment of like, Oh, I knew what it was, you know, but as you get further into your career, I mean, differential is everything. I mean, if you, if you don't consider differential, you're by definition having a little anchor bias. And so if you're wrong, you're actually not all that useful to your patient. You're, uh, you know, so differential is what separates us from a Google search. And, uh, you know, to keep us from being replaced by robots, I think differential. And so this whole episode would kind of speak to that, that, you know, not everything that's circular or scaly is necessarily uh, fungal. Some of the things that actually are can require, you know, some differences in treatment. And so that's something I stress with my med students and residents that, uh, you know, the, the most obvious thing you still want to just at least mentally keep those. Uh, I would say it's maybe more of an issue in dermatology, too. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful field. It's great. There's visual diagnosis. But actually, we do see sometimes the same 50 diagnoses. And so um, keeping your uh, neurons uh, exercising by differential is just so important to serve our patients so well that that's what they pay us for. I think it's a good pearl. And it's also very uh, humbling and inspiring to hear a dermatologist say that because I feel like in my mind, a dermatologist is just going room to room saying that's versicolor, that's psoriasis, that's uh, numular eczema. Like what are these PCPs doing? Let's, let's get these guys out of my clinic. We got to keep going. You know, and I, I so again, I, I, I had my time in, in peds. I would have been happy to be a pediatrician forever. I mean, I really, I love my time in peds. In fact, if I couldn't see a lot of kids and what I do now, I never would have uh, done gone back for my second residency. And uh, again, not not to you know sound gushy to the audience, um, but I feel like pediatricians do a great job with dermatology. They think about it. They take it seriously. They they read on their conditions. So, so yeah, my, the yield of my typical uh, pediatrician referral is, is excellent. Um, I'm always happy to, to get referrals out. You know, obviously I've, I, I have pediatricians who've rotated with me for, you know, a decade and in my town of, of Dayton, Ohio, where I live, you know, I know a lot of the, the pediatricians who I had spent time with me when they were residents and, and, and it's great. I'm always happy to, to see the patients and hopefully that's how your specialists uh, feel. And uh, obviously things can have good days, bad days. You may have seen them on a very bad day. I might see them on a very good day, but I try to always remember that. There's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know how to treat anymore after uh, 22 years from med school. So and we all have to have a little bit of professional respect and courtesy for one another. And and uh, so it never is a room to room. Gosh, this pediatrician was an idiot. I mean, that's just, that's just not how... How, how it goes. Glad to hear. Um, so, if yeah. anything, <laughs> good to hear. <laughs> That's our insecurities of dermatologists just making fun of us behind our back. So, it's a very, a very kind note to end on, and inspiring note to end on. Yeah, I would um, hope not. And so, this has been really great, very helpful, very useful. Is there anything that we can plug that you know you think listeners should check out? Anything you want to direct our audience to? 
Well, you know, the only thing in a general sense when I'm able to able to speak in a, at a at, in lectures or, or things I give is just to support, you know, medical research, which is harder in kids, but it's out there. So, you know, I run a clinical trials unit when I'm not seeing patients and I have no conflicts of interest with my clinical trials unit. We have a lot of our own investigational studies, uh, you know, pulling up on clinicaltrials.gov and thing, do things we do on our own. Uh, but we do often partner with uh, pharmaceutical companies. And again, even there, we have no conflicts of interest. We're just happy to have the new shiny toys that's all regulated by the FDA and have access to medications. And so, you know, um, just wherever you are, if you're listening, there are often clinical trials that may be appropriate for your patients that, uh, you know, help us advance the field. And again, I say this as a guy who doesn't make extra money or, or get anything as a, uh, a bonus uh, for bringing more patients in, but it is uh, uh, always, uh, you know, for my, my clinical trial unit, for instance, our pediatricians referring, you know, kids with psoriasis or kids with atopic dermatitis or alopecia areata or some of the things we have some of the new investigational medications for. It's always great when they, you know, trust us enough to consider letting their patients become one of our subjects and obviously we watch over our subjects uh, closely. So uh, just in a, in a broad sense, uh, you know, considering how a clinical research can help your patients, uh, the patient in your room, but also all of our patients is just uh, something I guess I would plug for given the opportunity. Love it. Amazing. Pro, we, we love pro research uh, uh, guests. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. What a great in-depth view of Tinea, a very common topic that pediatricians uh, will be grateful to hear about. We really appreciate you and, and thank you for joining us on the Cribsiders. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice stranger knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com, and we'll get back to you within one to six weeks. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Sydney Engel, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. This has been Sydney Engel. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Just kidding. This is Dr. Hain. Thank you and good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.